I'll talk today about Aristotle on singular thought. Uh, this is a very controversial topic because uh, the standard Thomistic interpretation says that thought, in the proper sense of the word, concerns only universals. Uh, but let, let us see how far we can get. Uh, the purpose of this paper is first uh, to undermine the Thomistic interpretation of Aristotle's account of similar thoughts, and second, to outline a more sensitive and plausible alternative to be referred to, if you will, as a causal theory. But one might ask in the first place why this is not already done in the literature. There are, as I see, basically two reasons. Uh, first, Aristotle's text has been read through the highly influential Thomistic view, and second, an alternative to an abstractionist uh, or descriptivist um, theory has long been seen as theoretically unattractive. Uh, the proposal to be put forward here is that Aristotle's account of thought admits of two kinds of singular thought. Thought about an individual as an instance of a kind, for example, this FSG, and thought simply about an individual A, without the sort of concept A, F. As a terminological note, my singular is meant uh, to capture Aristotle's Tokkat Hekaston and general Tokkat Holu. Alternatively, one might translate Tokkat Hekaston as particular and the Tokkat Holu as universal. However, as Jonathan Barnes notes in his commentary on the posterior analytics, Aristotle is systematically ambiguous between the individual or particular and the specific. In making a distinction between the two, the context thus needs to be studied in great detail. And as another note, uh, I will focus in this presentation on Aristotle's psychology. A comprehensive study of this subject would require, certainly, a metaphysical discussion of the nature of forms uh, in Aristotle, but I shall not go into them in this connection. I'll begin by looking at what is at issue here. Uh, so, what's the problem? The problem, uh, if there is any, arises from a certain Thomistic understanding of Aristotle's account of thought and the way in which thought is seen as related uh, to the intelligible objects. One way to formulate this problem is to look at the causal model Aristotle applies to explaining thought in analogy with sense perception in De Anima 3 uh, 4. On this model, its capacity of the soul is to be defined with reference to its proper objects. And there is an exclusive distinction between the perceptive objects and the intelligible objects. This is why Aristotle posits the perceptual capacity and the intellectual capacity as two distinct capacities in the first place. Proper objects are commonly taken to be qualities rather than individual. Sense modalities differ from one another in that they are powers to perceive sense qualities such as colors and sounds, and the intellect differs from the senses in that it grasps intelligible qualities, that is, kinds and genera of things. Thus understood, individuals simply be proper objects for neither the senses nor the intellect. The problem is that if an individual is grasped at all, it's grasped merely accidentally, which means that it has causal power on the soul only in virtue of the fact <coughs> that it coincides with something that has a per se causal power, namely 
the quality of this individual. This is spelled out in logical terms in the handout 1a. When, for example, I think of an individual human being, the proper object of my thought is a general aspect of this individual, that is, human kind. And the individual is just an accidental object. And an analogous argument can be given of sense perception of individuals. If this is correct, the senses and the intellect would in fact be ignorant of the individual because accidental causes, uh, being non-explanatory causes, cannot properly explain the states of the senses and the intellect. There is another way to raise basically the same problem as stated in the handout 1b. Aristotle distinguishes between two kinds of thought in De Anima 3.6. Understanding of indivisible objects, ton, aliaire, ton, noesis, and combining and dividing what is thought. In other words, making assertions and denials about them. The standard Thomistic interpretation holds that the indivisible objects include universals of various sorts, but exclude individuals. Since Aristotle nevertheless states in this context that the intellect can make combinations and divisions about individuals, for example, Clarence White, because it's Aristotle's own example, there needs to be some explanation how. The problem is that if the Thomistic view is correct, singular thoughts cannot be grounded in understanding of indivisibles. What else then can they be grounded in? How can one form a singular thought in the first place? The analytical problem has involved various reactions. Many later thinkers, such as John Lewis Curtis, William Ockham, and John Burinham, entirely dismissed the Aristotelian understanding of thoughts. But Thomas Aquinas is perhaps the most influential among those who have defended his understanding of Aristotle's theory. This T1 with a handout. His argument is that singular thought is to be seen as a certain qualified type of thought, indirect or reflexive. The intellect comes to know the individual only when it studies the universal by turning towards phantasms or appearances. This conversion at phantasmata. Many have found the explanatory force of this idea questionable, but Peter Kitch holds that Aquinas was basically correct. This handout T2. <coughs> Claims to be following uh, Aquinas in stating, quote, the intelligible content of the judgment is the same in all judgments, expressible as that flash was before that ban, regardless of which flash and ban are in question. A few lines later he continues, quote, the content of the judgment is always intelligible and conceptual. Acquaintance with a particular sensible thing is no part of the judgment itself but an act of judgment performed in a particular sensory context may thereby be referred to particular sensible things. End of quote. Gitch assumes that the reference to particular sensible things is due to sense perception, although he sincerely admits that he cannot tell how. In any case, Gitch's Thomistic view is in line with the Neo-Gregian arguments, which attempt to show that the content of singular judgment depends for its being not on the singular object referred to, but on the sense, zin, associated with the judgment. Although this view has its merits, I do not find it attractive as an interpretation of Aristotle's account of singular thought. In general, the two ways in which I formulated the alleged problem about singular thought in Aristotle are by no means neutral. 
On the one hand, uh, the Thomistic Gietzian interpretation can be seen as an attempt to resolve the problem, but on the other, it clearly generates the problem being based on certain controversial assumptions, such as the claim that the proper objects of thought are exclusively universals. From Aristotle's perspective, I think, a major problem with this line of interpretation is that it does nothing to avoid taking the thought of an individual as being merely accidental. Indeed, if Aquinas and Gitt are correct, singular thought is exclusively conceptual, in other words, merely descriptive or sort of. This plainly contradicts the common sense intuition that there are cases in which singular thought is non-descriptively based on sense perception, memory, and some other uh, or some other perceptual state about an individual. In opposition to the Thomistic Gietzian view, I will give several arguments to show that Aristotle's view was congenial with this common sense intuition about singular thought. I will proceed as follows. First, section 3 in the handout, I will show that the Thomistic Gietzian view is by no means necessitated by the text, that is, arguments A to C, and that this view is not entirely satisfactory as a philosophical theory. Argument D. Then, section 4 in the handout, I'll outline an alternative to this view that is more comprehensive and plausible in both textual and philosophical terms. And finally, sections 5 to 6, uh, I will critically reflect on this alternative. Then let's begin with argument 3a. The Thomistic view suggests that there are no singular thoughts in the proper sense of thought. In this view, uh, singular thoughts are to be understood as some sort of general thoughts. They are general thoughts that are somehow referred to phantasms. This has important implications concerning singular propositions and singular knowledge. First, the intellect does not properly speaking state the singular proposition, but the general proposition, which is referred to a singular item by means of a phantasma. And second, singular knowledge virtually collapses into the perception of a singular item. This is not the right place to go into the detail, but I will just mention a few points which show that, unlike the Thomistic Gietzian view implies, Aristotle was entirely comfortable with positing singular thoughts in various fields of study, ethics, metaphysics and logic. For example, the singular premises of a practical syllogism in Nicomachean Ethics 7.3 take the form, this F is desirable. Furthermore, uh, Aristotle assumes in Metaphysics Alpha 1 that the objects of experience, for example, which treatments works for which person with a certain illness, go beyond the confines of perception and memory, and yet he refers to them as particular. It's especially noteworthy that even in the prior and posterior analytics, he introduces discussions in which singular propositions play a significant role. His proof of e-conversion in prior analytics uh, yeah, A, for example, works best with a singular term. And the notion of singular knowledge in, uh, in prior analytics B21 implies knowledge of singular propositions, such as this F is G. Moreover, in discussing in a, a posterior analytics uh, B A, the different steps to knowledge, uh, to the knowledge of why the lunar eclipse occurs, he assumes that a step before knowing this is to discover that there are such phenomena. In this connection, he refers to the moon as a singular item. In my view, then, these examples clearly indicate that Aristotle was comfortable with positing singular thoughts. 
What is remarkable in the present discussion is that Aristotle felt no urge to give a reductive account of similar thought, such as the descriptive theory proposed by Gottlob Frege. In fact, there is even positive evidence that Aristotle is opposed to descriptive theory, and this is my argument uh, 3b. He gives several arguments against the possibility of defining individuals in metaphysics, uh, Zeta 15, claiming, for example, that one cannot give a uniquely identifying description of an individual because then there might be another individual that fits the same description. This indicates, I take it, that Aristotle is aware of the risk that the Freudian account of singular thought incurs. No matter how exhaustive a description as the expression of the sense can be given of an individual, the description being general by nature cannot properly fix the reference to the intended individual. Given that, why is it then that the Thomistic view has fared so well thus far? My conception is that it's crucially motivated by a certain interpretation of Aristotle's discussion of intellectual discrimination in De Anima 3.7. This is text 3 in the handout. The interpretation says that when, for example, we discriminate between water and what it is to be water, two distinct capacities are involved. The sensory capacity for perceiving water and the intellect for grasping its essence. The assumption is that there is a certain division of labor. Whereas the perceptual capacity concerns particular items, the intellect deals with universals. This interpretation has important implications. If the interpretation is correct, Aristotle would not regard intellectual discrimination as analogous with perceptual discrimination. As regards perceptual discrimination, he memorably holds that the perceptible items to be discriminated must be present to some one capacity, because otherwise we would find ourselves in a situation like the soldiers in the Trojan wooden horse. One sense would perceive one quality and another sense another quality without there being any one thing to judge that the that one quality is different from the other. However, if intellectual discrimination happens in the way in which the Thomistic view claims, there would be no one thing to make this judgment unless we admit that the soul or the human being does that. However, this admission would mark a break in Aristotle's explanatory approach. His psychology is referred to as faculty psychology precisely because it takes the faculties to be explanatorily prior. Given that, a retreat to a more general level of explanation, the soul or the human being, uh, would be question-begging. Why is it that these notions would help us to explain <coughs> intellectual discrimination in a way in which the intellect does not? To avoid this problem, I propose a different reading of the text. It's D4 in the hand. What is relevant for the present is the subject of discriminating in step 2. The Thomistic interpretation leaves it open, translating the Greek active voice crine in passive voice. My suggestion, based on manuscripts E and L, is that the subject of this verb is the intellect. Thus understood, step 2 gives two possibilities as to how to discern crine, uh, the aforementioned differences between, for example, a magnitude and what it is to be a magnitude. To maintain the analogy with perceptual discrimination, intellectual discrimination can be understood as a discriminatory activity as opposed to a judgmental activity, which implies making an assertion or a denial. Something else in uh, uh, alternative A 
refers to something that is different from the intellect, and the reference is most plausibly to the perceptual capacity, including fantasia, the capacity for appearance, whereas alternative B conceives of the intellect as operating in different states. The assumption is, presumably, that when the intellect grasps something uh, general, it's in one state, and when it grasps uh, something more specific, including singular, it's in another state. No further specification of the states involved and their relationship is given, although uh, step 7b suggests an analogy with a bent line and a straight line. The explanatory force of this analogy remains elusive. However, Aristotle's point, point is rather clear and well founded. Just as the sensory capacities of the sight is in one state when it sees the white and in another state when it sees the black, and even in a third one when it discriminates between the two, the intellect is also in one state when it studies a specific or singular item, in another one when it contemplates general item, and in a third one when it discriminates between the two. Step 5 uh, again uh, proceeds without mentioning the subject of discriminating. Rename. But I argue that the move from seven, uh, sorry, from five to seven is best explained on the assumption that the subject in both is the intellect. Thus interpreted, step five states that the intellect discriminates the hot and the cold in virtue of the perceptual capacity, including from the seer. I take this to mean that the intellect judges the hot to be different from the cold on the basis of a perceptual discrimination between the two, the thoughts and the perception or appearance being two different things. Thus understood, uh, perceptual discrimination and intellectual discrimination are two distinct acts. And there is no need to suppose that perceptual discrimination would inform us of the flesh. In any case, it need not, in fact, judge the perceived ratio of the hot and the cold to constitute a piece of flesh. As I see it, this is what the intellect judges with reference to the essence of flesh. Judgment and understanding being its two ways of operating. Assumption 6 paves the way for 7 in stating provisionally and sketchily the essence of flesh as a certain ratio between the hot and the cold. Thus understood, step 7 would appear to state the aforementioned alternatives A and B in the case of flesh touch. Either A, flesh and what it is to be flesh are discriminated by the intellect with the help of another, separable capacity, that is the perceptual capacity, or B, flesh and what it is to be flesh are discriminated by the intellect in a different way, without its help. The text gives as the object of Krine only what it is to be flesh, but the parallel of to sarkienai kai sarka krine at 429b 12 to 30 suggests giving flesh as another object to make good sense of discriminating between the two different items. Which alternative then does Aristotle find preferable? I take it that in the case of concrete items of thoughts, he prefers A, whereas in the case of our abstract items such as mathematical entities to be discussed immediately after the quoted text, he prefers B. Thus understood, he would be concerned here with two kinds of differences. The differences referred to in step one are between an instance of a kind and the kind itself, for example, a certain piece of flesh and the flesh uh, as a kind, whereas the differences referred to in connection with abstract thought are between the specific and the general. For example, between a certain straight line that is inherent in a triangle and a straight line in general, without reference to 
a certain continuum as the matter of that form. If my proposal holds, Aristotle would thus allow thoughts about individuals as instances of a kind. In more formal words, he would allow thoughts of a net. Presumably, he would also admit assertions and denials based on such thoughts. For example, the thought that an F is G, and that this, this F is G. In my interpretation, this follows from his understanding of intellectual discrimination. A problem with the alternative domestic view is that since it denies grasp of singulars to the intellect, it cannot account for the singular thoughts in this way. How then does it account for singular thoughts? How is it that one can make a singular claim about a certain instance of F? Aquinas' idea of turning to phantasms in text 1 is not properly speaking an explanation because, according to Aquinas, the intellect, the intellect is directly concerned only with the universal. Being indirectly concerned with an individual is no explanation. This is my point in 3D. Then it's time to turn to the more positive part of this paper, section 4. In contrast to the Thomistic view, my view is based on different understanding of Aristotle's causal theory of thought. Aristotle introduces thinking, the knowing, in analogy with sense perception, though isonestic, at the beginning of De Anima 3.4. The analogy seems to be a general heuristic principle in this discussion of thinking in the subsequent chapters up to 3.8. It clearly sets Aristotle's theory apart apart from many later theories of thought in that it's based on this general halomorphic framework. Both sense perception and thinking are taken to be activities in which a passive power is acted on by an active power. Sense perception is to be understood as the perceptual capacities being informed by that which is perceptible. Likewise, thinking is to be understood as the intellectual capacities being informed by that which is intelligible. What makes a perception the perception it is, is the form received from a perceptible item. Similarly, what makes thought the thought it is, is the form received from an intelligible item. This is significant because the form explains why a perception and a thought concern some one thing, a unity rather than a plurality. As I see it, and for a Aristotle intended his theory as general implying that the idea of the reception of intelligible form is meant to be compatible with the manifold activities and states he associated with the intellectual capacity. Assumption, hypolepsis, belief, doxa, experience, empiria, knowledge, episteme, understanding rules, understanding of particulars, uh, enoia, practical reason, phronesis, and choice, prioritizes. <coughs> It's important to see that Aristotle's discourse on the reception of intelligible form is a very cautious and general way of accounting for the causal relationship between uh, the intelligible item and its impact on the mind. This doesn't commit him to any specific view about the causal relationship. I argue that this is why he has room enough to adjust this theory, theory to fit different kinds of thoughts. Indeed, there is no compelling, compelling reason to assume that the intelligible forms act on the intellect in exactly the same way. This is significant if his account concerned merely with one specific kind of reception, the reception of universals, it would be strikingly incomplete. One objection to this argument is 
that an individual cannot be a causal agent in the sense required by Aristotle's causal theory. This objection applies equally to sense perception and thought. It says, for example, that it's not the white thing, but the white color that is the causal agent acting upon the perceptual capacity. In cases in which more than one perceptible property is perceived at a time, the unity of an object is explained with reference to the perceptual capacities being one thing. By analogy, it could be argued, it's not that which is a man, but the property of being a man, that is, the causal agent acting upon the intellect. Furthermore, in cases in which uh, more than one intelligible property is grasped at the moment, the unity of an object is explained with reference to the intellect being one. This objection is taken for granted by many interpreters, but I do not find it persuasive. There are two basic problems with it, one textual and the other theoretical. The textual problem is that it leaves entirely unexplained why Aristotle emphasizes in one of his key accounts of sense perception in De Anima 2.12 that quote, the sense is acted upon by that which has color, taste or sound, insofar as that thing is such. Aristotle's point is not that the sense would be acted upon by the color, taste or sound as such. It's rather that the sense is affected by an individual insofar as it has certain qualities. Aristotle doesn't, does not make a corresponding link to the claim about the intellect, but his argument from analogy strongly suggests that the intellect is acted upon by that which has certain ineligible properties insofar as it has those properties. The theoretical problem is that if the objection were germane, Aristotle would lack resources to explain sense perception and thought of individuals in his preferred causal theory. As a result, he would be forced to supplement this theory with considerations about the unifying function of the perceptual capacity and the intellect. There is not much textual evidence on the matter, but the literature refers to two different ways. One way is to argue that perceptions and thoughts of individuals are merely accidental. Single perceptible and intelligible properties are perceived and thought to constitute a unity simply because they happen to be present to some one capacity. Another, and a far more radical way, is to suggest that single perceptible and intelligible properties are perceived and thought as a unity because the perceiver or the thinker take them to constitute them. Thus understood, uh, perception and thought of individuals would be given an account in intentional terms. In either way, the unitary individual is taken to be a mind-dependent item. Since there is nothing in the causal input that would constitute a unitary object, the perceptual capacity and the intellect is seen to construe. However, if the suggested interpretation about individuals as causal agents is correct, any attempt to supplement Aristotle's account appears to be unnecessary in the first place. In line with this, I also argue that the individual, indivis indivisible objects of understanding include individuals, which are indivisible in number, and this is uh, for A in the handout. And this Argument is based on, on text 5. Interpreters have devoted surprisingly little attention to this important piece of text, uh, which states that there are two kinds of indivisible objects of the intellect. Those that are indivisible in kind, uh, presumably the most specific species, such as the human kind, and those that are indivisible in number, that is, individuals. Aristotle does not set here any restrictions on which kinds of individuals come into question. 
If this is correct, he would be willing to consider a variety of cases, such as thinking of an individual as an instance of a kind, and thinking of an individual simply, without social concepts. An example of the latter case would be a thought about Cleon. Uh, see text 6. As noted in 1a, Aristotle makes a distinction between understanding of indivisible objects and combining and dividing what is thought. When I argue in 4c that similar thoughts uh, are based on understanding of indivisibles, I'm referring to the singular thoughts that are combinations and divisions, that is, assertions and denials. There are two points that I'd like to point out in, in text 6. First, making an assertion or a denial requires that the intellect grasps both items to be combined or divided respectively. In the case of a singular assertion such as Cleon is white, the intellect grasps both Cleon and white. It's worth noting that there is no indication that such grasping would be accidental or indirect. However, a Thomistic interpreter is forced to read this qualification into the set text. Second, the intellect, according to Aristotle, is not only sensitive to individuals, but also to the temporal aspect under which they are given to the intellect. This is an indexical matter, and thus, par excellence, a singular intelligible feature. Aristotle shows no sign of embarrassment at this point. He takes it for granted that the scope of thought is much broader than timeless universals. Text 7 makes clear that it's necessary to distinguish between appearance and thought. In other words, for example, Cleon's appearing to someone is different from his being thought. And there is a similar difference between a trinal's appearing and its being thought. Why is this point important? Why does Aristotle draw attention to the difference between first thoughts, the protanoemata, and, if I may, last appearances? Many interpreters take him to be saying that the first thoughts uh, understood as thoughts about simple objects are about universals, whereas appearances are about perceptible particulars. For reasons given above, I'm not persuaded by the interpretation that thoughts about simple objects would exclude it would be exclusively uh, about universals, but I agree that thoughts cannot be identified with appearances due to their different contents. What is more important here, I argue, is that Aristotle also intends to make another, another point, and it is that appearance never constitutes a true claim. Even if the last appearance may be very complex in content, for example, Cleons appearing to be such and such uh, is very complex indeed complex enough to be mistaken for a complex thought. It nonetheless falls short of being an assertion or a denial, as they require an intellectual capacity. This is why a thought can never be replaced by an appearance. But there is more to it. Aristotle implies, I take it, that appearance would not even help us to specify the content of an intellectual judgment. This is because appearance is different in kind from thought. It's unsuitable to serving as a truth bearer in a relevant sense. This has an important consequence for the present discussion. In contrast to the Thomistic view, one cannot refer to an appearance in explaining single truth claims. According to Aristotle, it would be no use in saying that the judgment with non-singular contents makes a singular truth claim when it's referred to an appearance. A reference to an item that is unfit to a truth claim will not give a satisfactory explanation. In the absence of such an explanation, the Thomistic view seems very um, attractive. Another point worth considering is 
that Aristotle makes his dependence claim as a general thesis about all kinds of thought. Uh, the claim that thought is impossible without an appearance, text 8. This raises the question of whether these kinds are likewise dependent upon appearance. One might think that singular thought is somewhat different from general thought in this regard, because general thought, although based on appearance, involves some, some, some sort of disregard towards the singular determinate features of the item in question, and, I take it, the capacity for disregarding requires knowledge of the kind in question. Aristotle gives an example of thinking of math mathematical objects in De Anima 3.7. When we think of such an object, which is, as a matter of fact, not separate from a body or perceptive matter, we think of it as abstracted, horsket, horismena. This uh, qualification denotes the disregard in question. Aristotle goes into more detail in De Memoria. He specifies the dependence claim thus, text 7. Thinking is impossible without an appearance, for in thinking there is involved the same experience as in drawing a figure. For in the latter case, although we do not make any use of the fact that the size of the triangle is determinate, we nevertheless draw it determinate in size. So likewise the thinker, when thinking something that does not have a determinate size, places before his eyes an object of the size, though he does not think as such. Two remarks are in order. First, Aristotle is not discussing here how the concept of a triangle is acquired in the first place. Learning requires memory and experience over a longer period of time, and it's not a simple abstraction task to be accomplished in the moment. His focus is on an expert who is capable of thinking of geometrical figures in an abstraction. Second, he does not consider thinking in abstraction an activity in which an expert would extract a universal triangle from the appearance of a triangle of some definite size by giving or being in a position to give an account or a description that applies to each and every tri triangle in contrast to other geometrical entities. Aristotle's abstractionism is by no means a descriptive theory of general thought. Rather, given that the analogy with sense perception holds, he posits that when an expert is thinking of a universal triangle on the basis of an appearance of a singular triangle, his capacity for thinking is acted upon by the intelligible form of a triangle. This is possible because the expert has acquired the capacity not to think of the figure as having a determinate size. This is Aristotle's point in saying, though he does not think of it as such. Thus understood, what is thought is determined by the form of that triangle, not by a general description that is satisfied by any one triangle. An alternative interpretation is the Thomistic view that all thought is abstractive by nature, and that the causal agent of abstraction is the ancient intellect referred to in De Anima 3.4. According to Robert Passner, Aquinas holds two claims. First, the claim that the ancient intellect transforms the intentional character of the phantasm as a representation of a material particular by making up of it an intelligible species that represents universally. And second, the claim that the agent intellect transforms the ontological character of a phantasm by making an incorporeal species out of a corporeal phantasm. If we apply this understanding to Aristotle, uh, 
he would uh, <coughs> not separate general thought from singular thought by pointing out that uh, general thought involves some sort of abstraction. Instead, his point would be that even singular thought is abstracting, although uh, such that it requires a special term device, phantasmus. However, if the proposed argument about Aristotle's causal theory of thought is correct, the Thomistic interpretation must be well grounded. The interpretation put forward here is an attempt to see Aristotle's account of singular thought uh, uh, as an application of his more general approach to thought, uh, his causal theory, which is given in analogy with sense perception. Of course, this is not unproblematic. Uh, various questions are also critical in turn can be raised. For example, these are three questions uh, under one. First, how, according to the causal theory, does thinking of essences and mathematical entities differ from thinking of individuals? Is there a different causal route, one involving experience and abstraction, and the other being directly based on sense perception and fantasia? And second, what's the difference between thinking of A as air and thinking of A simply, without the social concept of Is this a difference between thinking of A with knowledge and without knowledge? And third, does the causal theory have anything interesting to say about thought of composites? Are the combinations and divisions made by the intellect determined by the things in the world, that is, compound substances with various properties? How does a compound substance, called A, with the property F, makes the thoughts of A being F true? As an interpreter, I'm inclined to answer all these questions in the affirmative but it would be beyond the scope of this presentation to go into that. In any case, it's not entirely clear on poorly textual crimes how far Aristotle is willing to extend his causal explanatory model. Many recent philosophers tend to think that the causal theory is fit to explain singular concepts, but assume that general concepts, including logical concepts, require a different account. Given that, one might ask whether Aristotle could give a plausible account of general thought by combining his causal approach with some uh, form of abstractionism. I do not see a great problem with the concepts of natural and mathematical kinds, but logical concepts are a different matter and require a special treatment. Aristotle did not give such treatment, but this should not be deemed as a shortcoming, uh, this should be deemed as a shortcoming rather than a problem in his theory of thought. In conclusion, I will introduce two cases uh, through the discussion of which we can examine Aristotle's account of uh, singular thought and contrast it with some other accounts. If my argument holds, Aristotle's view substantially differs from Frege's descriptivism, for example. First, easy case. Suppose that one sees a person looking like Coriscus, whom one knows, and forms a singular thought. Coriscus is over there. Let's also suppose that this thought is false because Coriscus is in fact absent and what one sees is his identical twin brother, who subjectively is indistinguishable in appearance. The question is what makes one think about Coriscus and not about his twin brother. Aristotle's view, as I see, is that one's thoughts are of Coriscus and not uh, his twin brother precisely because it's the form of Coriscus and not that of his twin brother that acts on the intellect. This is possible 
if one has been in contact with Koisko at some time in the past and has retained an appearance of him, it doesn't matter whether one can separate his appearance from that of his twin. Thinking about the twin would be determined by a different causal history in any case. Let us next modify the easy case and suppose that one sees a person looking like Koriskos, whom one knows and ha has as a friend, and pointing at that person makes a singular claim, he is my friend. This raises the question, which singular thought one has in mind, the thought Koriskos is my friend or the person I'm seeing is my friend? Aristotle's view, as I take it, is that one has in mind the thought Coriscus is my friend. This is reasonable because one would not have expressed one, one's thought by saying he is my friend if one had been pointing at someone else but Coriscus. Thus understood, even when one misleads a potential listener by the expression of the thought, one's thought would still be true. Thank you.